of God's Word, and we'll be reading in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And just to give a little bit of context, the previous verses to this, what has happened is Jesus has just been called a friend of gluttons, drunkards, tax collectors, and so forth. And in one sense, almost in a humorous sense, Luke lays out this parable almost to say, oh yeah, I am a friend of all of those and one more. I'm going to one-up the scale here. I'm going to go to the lowest of the low. I'm going to go to a Pharisee. I'm going to go to a hypocrite and dine with him. He doesn't realize he's a hypocrite, but he's soon going to see it. And that's our passage for this morning. So Luke writes, God speaks. One of the Pharisees asked him, and that being Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may be seated. If you think for a second about this question, what is something in your life? It could be an event. It could be something you said. It could be something somebody said to you that defines you. A past event Something that was said that almost defines who you are. Something that dramatic. In this passage, we're going to see an event that takes place for this woman, those who are watching, and Simon, that will essentially define who they are. And it's all about a matter of, in context, who they see Jesus to be and what they do about that. See, they're debtors. They come before the only one who can uh, provide forgiveness for that debt. 
And that's what we see here this morning. So as we go through this, keep your Bibles open as we'll walk through the narrative. There's also notes in the uh, bulletin if you want to make use of those. But our, our frame, to frame our outline, it's simply this. We're going to see three responses to Jesus in this passage and match ourselves up probably with one of them. So in verse 36, Jesus is invited for a meal. The Pharisee invites him, probably not for really good intentions, most likely to judge him, to try to put himself over Jesus, or maybe to, to gain some prestige and honor from having a famous rabbi in his house. But not very good intentions for why Jesus is brought to the table. But Jesus is willing to appear before anyone to offer the gospel in a sense, again, to the lowest of the low. So in that way, verse 36 sets the table for this meal, literally and figuratively. Verse 37, we see this word, behold. And when we see that word in Scripture, it's meant to to cause alarm. Something's not normal here. Behold would have an exclamation mark on it. What's, What's going on? Somebody has come in to the dinner who didn't belong. And it's not the fact that just somebody came in. in. In the Palestinian homes, it wasn't hard to find your way into the home and then into the, the area, maybe in the courtyard where the meal would be. It was relatively open. That's not a big deal. The big deal is who it is who's come. Luke describes her as a sinner, a woman of the city. Many think she's a prostitute. Luke doesn't say, so we don't know for sure, but we do know that she's notorious for her sinfulness. The other thing that's really important is she and Jesus have likely met before. The fact that she comes in prepared with this alabaster vial of perfume shows that she's probably met Jesus before. He has very likely had a profound effect on her life, likely by forgiving of her sins And that's why she's here. As the passage progresses, we see some kind of opposite responses to Jesus. The woman stands there initially behind him, probably watching what's going on, but probably not for very long, because it doesn't take long for her to see that Jesus is not being treated well. Hospitality, very important there. He is not being treated well at all. So either in righteous anger or more likely in in passionate reverence, awe, thanksgiving for who she knows Jesus to be, she begins, she kneels at his feet, weeping, uh, putting perfume on his feet, wiping his feet, drying them, but not just once. The, The verb here are all imperfect verbs, meaning she's doing it over and over and over again. This is... Uh, not normal. This quite stands out to everybody seeing this because of her repeatedly doing this. The other Gospels, when referencing this passage, point out how expensive the perfume is and maybe that this was even being done as a preparation for Jesus' burial in the future. Also, the Talmud, which was just... The Talmud, it's not the Bible. It's a Jewish... uh, Uh, kind of book of teachings and so forth that the Jews would often follow. The Talmud said, if a woman did this, if she let down her hair in public like this to do this, 
she would she would be divorced or she could be divorced. So it's it's that significant that she's let down her hair that she's doing this because Jesus is her all. That's all that matters to her. She doesn't care what anybody else thinks at this point. Then we get to the other response. Simon, seeing this, previous to this, only called a Pharisee over and over again. But now we're going to see how he responds. Complete disgust and judgment. Does he realize who this is? If he did, it would be different. Thinking of Jesus in, in judgment. He sees what he wants to see. Simon sees what he wants to see here. And you can think of presuppositions. He already had in his mind that he was going to condemn Jesus and now this woman as well. There is no way they could have done anything right in his eyes. He had his mind made up. See, for Simon, religion's for good people. There's no grace, no room for grace in his religion. So he looks at them both with scorn and disdain. After all, women and men shouldn't converse at all. And if this woman is sinful and unclean, it's even more awful. So he's written them both off by the way he sees that. So we'll take a step back here for just a second and think of a, a couple applications at this point. The first one being this. How do our presuppositions, the lenses that we see things through, affect us? As an example, when you came to church this morning, if you've been here the past couple weeks, you knew, okay, this would be a sermon that somehow touched on giving, okay, because we're in the midst of a series of sermons on that. So how did that make you feel coming into this? Were you of the opinion, wow, man, this is the third of four. I've heard enough. I don't want to be taxed anymore. That's enough of this. You may have kind of a negative view of it, or it could be, our, our church giving's in the Bible. We need to hear that. That's a good thing. Bring it on. Don't know. Or maybe somewhere in between there. But you may have presuppositions that affect the way that you're hearing and thinking of things. For others, often, um, Sunday mornings, we come in with a presupposition of maybe an event that, that happened at home in the morning. Um, maybe a little squabble there. Even those those so rarely happen on Sunday mornings. Maybe you came in the car, you go to get one of your children out, and it's, where are your shoes? And what's that mess? Oh, hey, Tim, praise Jesus. Good to see you, brother. I love you. So, you know, that kind of squabble or whatever can affect the rest of the service. So it's one of the reasons, really, Romans 12 says we need to be renewed in our minds so that we're thinking God's thoughts after him, as we hear, as we worship, all those things. Another application would be this that we see uh, in the passage. How do you treat people that you perceive as sinners? Sinners with a capital S, big sinners. Do you disdain them? Do you look down on them or reach out to them with the love of God? Admittedly, we have to, we have to be careful there. Okay, it's not necessarily a one-size-fit-all. We want to pre- present the gospel to sinners, absolutely. But a helpful guide there is, is this. 
if I can go to this person, see myself as a doctor with the cure, I have the gospel, I can go to them. I'm not going to be infected with the disease in a sense. I go to them, I minister to them. For others, there may be some situation, some person, it's, it's not good and right for me to go by myself because I might catch the disease. Either case, we're, we want to love that sinner, but we do it in the right way. And Jesus is going to teach Simon that. In verse 40, Jesus says, the teacher, he re-educates Simon. Simon had thought, if this man were a prophet, well, Jesus says, okay, Simon, let me prove that to you. I know what you're thinking. I'll show you I'm a prophet. And in the Middle East, when you would introduce um, a point to someone, uh, uh, basically a blunt speech that they didn't want to hear, Simon isn't going to want to hear what Jesus is getting ready to say. There was a certain way to do it. And that's what Jesus does there when he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. He introduces the speech in that way. So we see this interesting point about Jesus. Jesus is always in control. Even in this context here where he's being ridiculed, mocked, and so forth, he's in control. Even as he goes to the cross for our sake, he's in control. So Jesus tells this parable. And in the parable, both men are debtors. And that's always the type of people that Jesus is dealing with, with debtors. Because Christians even... We're not proud people looking down on others, looking down on those who have received grace. Rather, Christian is one who is under, looking up, always receiving grace. So Jesus points out to Simon, he goes through this parable, and he says, Simon, of these two, who will love him more? Simon, realizing that he's essentially being trapped, well, I suppose... And gives the answer. So Simon's being taught a hard lesson here. Years back, the, uh, the um, theologian Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher and theologian, he said this. He said, you know, the opposite of sin is not virtue. The opposite of sin is faith. So this woman here, she actually has what's needed. She has faith. Simon doesn't agree with that. He thinks the opposite of sin is virtue. The fact is, we come into life because of our sin nature with a grade of F. And our virtues in and of themselves can't climb the ladder and get us to an A. You know, our contribution is to take that F to an F minus. We can't do much to help our situation. Apart from Christ, our virtues aren't much of anything. And you see, Simon, one of his problems is he never had the experience of having an IOU torn up. He never experienced that, or at least he didn't realize it. So for children, you could think about it this way. You may have a a child who's outside playing. The parents told the child, don't throw the ball around this window. They go and do it anyway. Break that window. That child's never even seen a $100 bill. That window is going to cost big money. But the parent forgives the child, assumes that debt for them. How does that make that child feel? Or maybe a teenager, she says something extremely harsh and harmful to her mother. 
But the mother in tears forgives that girl. Or vice versa. Maybe the teen forgave the mother of something that shouldn't have been said. Think of the forgiveness and the feeling there. That's what Simon should have felt. But he didn't. Because he thought he had earned everything. And therefore he looks down on Jesus and this woman. So Jesus goes further with the trap. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I'm going to take you out of the philosophical. We're not just talking about a philosophical parable. Let's get back to reality. Simon, do you see this woman? You don't just get to have some head knowledge here. You're going to have to apply this and accept it or reject it. Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus looks at her as he talks to Simon so that Simon has to look at her. And so, Simon, she has treated me in every way that you failed to do. You see, at that time, hospitality was so important. When you had somebody, a visitor in your house, they were supposed to be treated and become a guest. So anybody who visited the, the home at that time, they would leave in, two, in one of two ways. They would either leave as your enemy because you treated them in such an ill manner that they hated you, or hopefully they left in a way of singing your praises. They would not leave the same. It was extremely important, and Simon knew this. And so when Simon treated Jesus this way, it was extremely clear he was rejecting him, just as the Pharisees as a whole had rejected Jesus. So Jesus makes it extremely clear in the way he walks through the passage. And the way this is laid out, essentially in the Greek, is this. Jesus emphasizes his feet over and over. It literally reads like this. Simon... Water to my feet you didn't give, but she in tears wetted my feet, and with her hair she wiped them dry. A kiss you did not give, and students and disciples at that time should have kissed the hand of the teacher out of deference. Simon didn't want to acknowledge that. But she, since I came in, has not stopped kissing my feet. In olive oil, you did not anoint my head. That would have refreshed the guest's face. But in perfume, again, my feet, she has anointed. So, Redeemer, do we see this woman? Do we see this woman? There were two debtors in the parable. And there's two debtors in the story. One realizes forgiveness And if you'll accept the word, she moves towards giveness. New word. The other experiences, has the potential to receive forgiveness, but ends up in for myselfness. So two choices there. So again, the problem with the parable isn't understanding it. Some parables are hard to understand. This one isn't. Simon gets it. It's with applying it. It's with applying the, the parable. W.H. Auden, uh, American poet in the 1930s. Auden, Odin, I'm not sure how to say it. Those of you in English literature who know can correct me if I'm wrong afterwards. Um, he says, we would rather be ruined than changed. 
We would rather be ruined than changed. What's that mean? Young folks, college students, ask someone older about that later. If it's not true, that as we get older, we get a little more set in our ways, even though we might know, I need to change this. It's hard. So at your age, if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging you, telling you, I need to repent of this, I need to change, I need to embrace this, don't wait. Don't quench the Spirit. It gets harder as you get older. We even see that in a, in a humorous way. Um, the Star Wars movies, I can't remember which one it is. I think maybe it's the, the third one or they get renumbered, whatever it is. But Darth Vader, when Luke is pleading with him, and Luke's telling him, you know, the dualistic move, you got the good and the evil and whatever. But, but Darth essentially says to Luke, you know, it's too late for me, son. I can't do it. He can't change, okay? He didn't know I was a, a voice actor. But, but so Darth Vader, later in life, too set in his ways. Don't wait. It's, it gets hard to change. So verse, 30, uh, verse 47. Here's where we need to do just a little bit of work to understand this verse and not misinterpret it. In verse 47, the question is this. Consequence or cause? Consequence or cause? In other words, is this woman's love a consequence of divine forgiveness or the cause of it? Is the woman's love a consequence of forgiveness or the cause of it? In other words, is she, forgi- is she forgiven because she loved Jesus much or has she begin- been forgiven first and then her actions are essentially out of thanksgiving? We'll say this, the love is a consequence, and here's why. Two, two reasons, two factors. One's grammar, one's grammatical, the other's contextual of what's going on in the passage. The, the grammatical one is this. The tense of the verb for forgiveness is a perfect verb. Oh, man, you're taking me back to grammar school. Let me just explain real quick what a perfect verb is. Perfect verb means It happened in the past, but it still has effects now. Happened in the past, has effects now. Example might be this. You're in the kitchen doing something. Teenage son or daughter comes in, got music going pretty loud. You say, hey, what you listening to? Oh, I'm listening to this. It's really good. Yeah, take off the headphones. They're factor of being listening of listening to that loud music they're still doing it and they're so they're still they're yelling at you about it okay present or perfect tense there past has effects in the present same thing for with forgiveness she's been forgiven in the past and it has effects now the other factor is contextual simply this and i don't think it's too hard to see this She's acting in a way where we can perceive that she and Jesus have met in the past and he's forgiven her of her sins, so she brings the perfume. Okay? So that helps us interpret that verse and not go astray there. So to boil it down, here's how we should take verse 47. For this reason, I tell you that her sins, her many sins, must have been forgiven or she would not have shown such great love. So her love was not the cause of her forgiveness, but it's confirmation. So then for Simon, 
the implication is clear as well. You don't love much because you haven't experienced much forgiveness. So for one, the forgiveness leads to giveness. For the other, to for myselfness. And you say, okay, maybe I buy that. But if that took place in the, fa- in the past, why does verse 48, why does Jesus say your sins have been forgiven? Okay, probably two simple reasons. One, a reminder. Even though we know as Christians, my sins, past, present, future, are forgiven, think of the benefit of being reminded of that. We need that reminder. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even though past, present, future, all forgiven when we come to Christ, there's the value of the reminder. Jesus can be reminding her. Also, to testify to the audience. We mentioned there's three groups here. You've got the woman who has the correct response. You've got Simon who has the conceited response. And then you've got this curious response of the people who are sitting there watching. Jesus is testifying to them, letting them know, I am a prophet. I can forgive sins. See, normally priests could, receive, could, could forgive sins. Prophets, in a few instances, did as well in the Old Testament. Jesus is showing, I am, again, that perfect prophet as well as the perfect priest. So as the passage finishes, verse 50, we're left with a question. Who will we be? We get to, in a sense, put ourselves in the, in the place at the table of the curious, of the other ones there, asking, what's going on? Who is this? What should I do in response? And again, I think we know this parable isn't that hard to understand. To apply it is a bit of the hard part. In a sense, we could say, I know what I'm supposed to do. We're supposed to give and not hold back, just like this woman did. So what's, what's my help, in a sense, to do that? Some of you, maybe in psychology classes, you've seen uh, Maslow's Pyramid, okay? And so what Maslow did is he kind of constructed this pyramid, and he said, here's how you progress in life. Ultimately, you want to get to up here where you reach self-actualization, okay? But you can't just jump there. You have to progress, And so you have to start here with these physiological needs. You need air, you need water, you need food. Without those, you can't live. Okay, we'll buy that. Then he said, then you need safety needs. You need money to buy those things, to breathe, to, I mean, not to breathe, to eat, to drink, and so forth. And I need a job to have money to do that. Okay, so I want to progress. I've got my safety needs. Then you got social needs. I want some friendships. You know, I want something more important than just eating and breathing. I want friendships. I want intimacy. I want things like that. And then if I progress further, esteem. I want people to respect me, value what I have to say, like me, etc. So you can see we're progressing up this. This makes some sense. A lot of times we tend to, to kind of order our lives that way. But the ideal is to get up to the self-actualization where we can say, there I've got it all together. I've got my morals straight. I'm a creative person. I don't have prejudice. And I'm a giver. 
I can teach other people how to live, and I've also progressed so far by taking care of my own stuff that now I can give back in multiple ways. One of those is financially. So often we think of things that way. Take care of these necessities, and then I can give afterwards. Okay, again, logically, the world sense, that's often the way to live. But the interesting thing is, Jesus, in Matthew 6.33, he essentially flips this on its head and does things completely the other way around. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Not these different levels. One thing. Seek first the kingdom of God. And I, and I remember back in college, a friend of mine who, who lived this out, and we all thought he was a wacko. He even set his alarm clock for 6.33. So he would get up, and there it was. Beep, beep, beep. Reminder right there. Live Matthew 6.33. We saw him as a wacko. I see now he had it together. But the point was, he was all for Christ. Other things fall in place. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You don't go with Maslow's pyramid. You flip things over. Christ first. Other things follow. Okay? So, to be honest, I think one of the most revealing questions is this. Do I really want to give? Do I want to give? Because that gets at our heart. If we, if we in our heart say, no, I don't, then we need to go back to the scripture. Because it's pretty clear we need to give because we've been given to. If your answer is yes, how can I get there? How can I get there? You can, you, the, there's a simple illustration that says, if I'm buttoning up a shirt and I miss up, mess up that first button, and I can do that pretty well, the other, you can't fix it. You can't get the other buttons in order once that first one's off. So that's what Jesus is saying. Give to him first. Otherwise, there's no way to have it in order. Finish with this. Okay, and this is bigger than just the, the giving money or, or whatever. Maybe you feel like, okay, I see it. I hear it. I understand it. I'm missing the passion I'm missing the passion. I wish I had given more. I wish I could live like this woman does. Is it too late? In one sense, no, it's never too late. Even though we said we'd rather be ruined than changed and we don't want to wait, but there's always hope in the gospel. In one of the most powerful ways, saw this just in the last couple weeks. Many years ago, converted slave trader wrote this of himself. This is what he had to say. So he's a Christian at the time, but he's down because he realizes how much more I can and should be, I should be living for Christ. He said, so many mercies, so few returns. You know, in other words, here's what Christ has given me. I've done so much, so little, so little in return. Such great privileges in a life so sadly below them. He was, he was down. He realized, his, realized how, how far he was falling short. But the good news is, 
Some of you may know when I said slave trader, that was John Newton. He said that. Weeks, months later, God gives him grace so that he writes, you know, one of the most powerful songs that we're, we're going to sing in closing, Amazing Grace. God shows up, grants to him that grace to realize it's not too late. I can passionately live out the cause of the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your word at times is hard to understand, but at other times it's easy to understand, hard to apply. And sounds odd that I thank you for that, but the good thing is it causes us all the more to rely on you, to drive us away from being a Simon who think that we get it, that we're virtuous, that we don't need you or anyone else and that we can look down on others. We are called as Christians to look up out from under grace that you pour down on us over and over. And for that, we thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.